please remain standing for the gospel lesson, which is taken from Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 9. Hear now the gospel of the Lord. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, we come this morning to our last sermon. Uh, I think it's the 20th, if I'm counting right, on the parables. But this will be the last one. And uh, what we have here in the Luke 18 passage, which was just read, is the quite famous and very well-loved story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. At least it was well-loved by Martin Luther, who, if you can believe it, preached 13 sermons on just this text. 13 sermons on six verses. And as you might guess, uh, Martin Luther's great passion here is due to the presence of the term justified in verse 14. Justification by faith alone being, of course, one of the great battle cries of the Reformation of which Luther was a leader in the 16th century. Now to this point in the series on parables, we've seen numerous parables which place great stress on our need to forgive, our need for works of charity and obedience. And those things were brought into such close connection with eternal salvation that they seemed, at least some of them, some of the parables seemed to raise questions about salvation by free grace alone. And we said at the time, that there are caveats and there are important qualifiers, but Jesus doesn't have to make them. He has no need to make them every time he speaks. Well, this parable is a great qualifier. It's important to hear this parable. Like a lot of parables, the sharpness of this one is blunted for us because we've become accustomed You know, especially at the end of a series on the parables, we become accustomed to Jesus' reversals of prevailing expectations. Surely that's one thing we should be used to by now. Jesus is going to turn the tables in the parable. He's going to reverse the social and cultural expectations. And of course he does that here. Because of where we stand in history, we expect the Pharisee to be the bad guy and the tax collector to be the good guy. 
It's sort of like we expect hospitals to be named Good Samaritan Hospital. But that was surely not the case for Jesus' audience. The Pharisees were something like the religious heroes of the day. They were conservative, Bible-believing, Torah-keeping party. Their history began with Judas Maccabeus in the second century BC, who led a revolt against the pagan desecration of the temple. The Pharisees opposed the pagan corruption of the faith. They were for the purity of the temple worship. They, for, they were for a return to the law. They opposed the Roman occupation. And so while we have this equation in our head that says Pharisee equals bad guy, Jesus' audience surely didn't have it. And even, even a close reading of the Gospels, where the conflict with the Pharisees is, is quite intense, we see a number of them depicted as quite honorable and good men. Remember, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Joseph of Arimathea was a Pharisee. The tax collectors, on the other hand, and we've seen this as well, they were considered traitors, Roman collaborators. You think you don't like the IRS at this time of year? <laughs> Just try being a Roman tax collector in Judea in the first century. On top of that, they were considered unclean, perhaps because of their occupation, which brought them into contact with Gentiles. So to get something of a sense of this, I think, in modern terms, we might call this the parable of the pastor and the prostitute. Where the prostitute is the one who is justified. There's a wonderful uh, New Testament scholar, uh, an evangelical and, and good man uh, named Craig Bloomberg. He's at Denver Theological Seminary. He has a sermon on this text. He titled the sermon... The parable of the recovering homosexual. And he tells a story, he opens the sermon and he tells the story of two mutual friends of his. One is a homosexual with AIDS, Bloomberg says, of his friend, who was so ashamed of himself and yet was clearly hoping that God would be merciful to him. The other friend, and all three of them are friends, they were mutual friends. The other friend, he said, was an evangelical Christian who had nothing but a he-got-what-he-deserved contempt for their mutual friend. And Bloomberg said, this text raises the unnerving possibility that it's my friend with AIDS who is justified and it's my outwardly devout and pious evangelical friend who is not. So we should be careful that we know what this is about. We should not assume at the outset that this parable is simply about a bad Pharisee. The parable is broad in its application. Look at verse 9. It says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Some translations say they had contempt on everyone else because they were so confident in their own righteousness. So the text is a warning 
not just to Pharisees, but to us, to you and I as Christian disciples. So we'll make two points. The parable, that's in verses 10 through 13, and justification in verse 14. The parable and justification. So first, the parable itself. In verse 10, we have two men. They go up to the temple to pray. It's important, actually, that this scene, this story, takes place in the temple precincts. Though we don't know why precisely until a little bit later. And and since the, the temple was structured in such a way that the inner courts were restricted to the priests, these two men are in one of the outer courts where the people would gather regularly to pray at certain specified times of the day, times that were associated with various sacrifices being made in the temple. One man is a Pharisee, or if you will, he's a pastor theologian. He's a Christian leader. The other's a tax collector, a prostitute, a struggling sinner. And verse 11 tells us that the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. The language suggests he was trying to separate himself from others, to stand out while he prayed. Which is a, you know, a sort of a pious affliction that can be seen. Uh, people like to pray. They like to stand out. They like to be depicted as pious. He's by himself. He's separating himself already because he thinks he's better. And standing, standing to pray would be the normal posture of prayer in the, in the ancient world. And here, prayers would be made aloud. And he prays thus, the text says, God, he starts, I thank you. That, by itself, is a good start. Uh, Many psalms start that way, and then they proceed to list the things that God has done for which the psalmist is thankful. So he starts barely with a note of gratitude. But as the text has already said, he's really praying about himself. So the Cliff Notes version of his prayer is basically, God, I thank you that I am such a wonderful person. (laughs) He stops just short of congratulating God for having such a fine man in his kingdom. He uses the word I four times. I thank you that I am not like other men and I am not like this. And so there's a kind of poison that's in this religious person's heart. He's a comparer. We've seen this in other parables. He's a counter. He's constantly comparing himself to other people and secretly congratulating himself on his superiority. This is a deeply entrenched poison in the human heart. It's hard to get a hold of it. It's hard to find it. It's hard to hunt it down inside yourself. It's hard to track it. And it's really hard to kill it. And Jesus goes after it again and again and again in the parables. And this is something I think that we Reformed, you know, those who are in in this tradition, I think we're particularly prone to it because we spend so much time emphasizing our distinctives, what makes us different from other churches, 
that there's a, there's, a, there's a subtle temptation here that we can become snide and pompous without even realizing it. And Calvinists are comparers. And now, comparisons are inevitable. They have to take place. Distinctions must be made and upheld. But we ought to realize that we're already on a sort of slippery ground here. That our distinctives, as wonderful as they are, they can create a kind of spiritual peril. They can lead to self-righteousness. Oh God, I thank you that I am not like those Baptists <laughs> and those silly people on TV, those crazy contemporary worship people, and those Arminians who just don't get the doctrines of grace. The man here has the hubris to differentiate himself from other men in general. Just as a general statement. It's almost as if he thinks he's better, not than just the tax collector, but than everybody else. I thank you, he says, that I am not like other men. That's the root of hubris right there. It's an astounding statement. Everybody is like other men. Everybody's operating in the same category, with the same stuff, with the same fallen humanity. There are no men or women who are not like other men or women in the sense intended here. There's nobody who stands out. And then he gives three types of, of men to whom he's superior. Robbers, evildoers or the unjust, and adulterers. Now this is kind of ironic, since in Luke's gospel to this point, up to, up to this text, Jesus has condemned the Pharisees already for cleaning the outside of the cup, he says, but inside, deep down there where nobody sees, being full of greed. So, so much for not being like robbers. He later says that they're obsessed with tithing, but they neglect justice. So much for not being unjust. He said that they loosen up the divorce legislation and thus end up underwriting adultery. So much for not being like adulterers. But let's assume, let's assume, because I think the text assumes this, that this particular Pharisee is personally not a robber or a thief. He's not personally unjust and he's not an adulterer. Right? There's still no hint of him grasping Jesus' instruction to obedient servants, where he says, when you've done all that's commanded of you, required of you, you are to say, we are simply unworthy servants. What we have in this figure, the Pharisee, the, the, the Christian leader, we have a, a man who's obsessed with himself and at the same time, lacking self-awareness. Right? This is the dynamic that is always at work in the self-righteous. They are obsessed with themselves, but they lack self-awareness. If they, if they had even a smidgen of self-awareness, they would say to you, yes, I'm obsessed with myself. <laughs> they don't even have that much self-awareness. 
There's no self-obsessed people who go around and say, yes, I'm self-obsessed and I lack self-awareness. It's, it's a profound irony. Again, it goes to the paradoxical slipperiness of our own hearts. That you can be obsessed with yourself and completely lack self-awareness. At root, they lack a sort of critical knowledge of themselves. They lack the virtue of self-criticism. They're unable to stand outside of their own skin, look at what they believe and what they do and say, that's not good. That needs to be challenged. I could be wrong here. I might need to correct this. I might need to hold that a little loosely. I might need to listen to some outside voices. I might need to hear the other side of this argument. People virtually never do this, ever. I saw briefly last night on C-SPAN, Robert George, who's a, the, the great professor of jurisprudence down at Princeton. If you don't know who Robert George is, you should. Uh, he was having a conversation with Cornell West. George is a man of the right. West is a, is a man of the left. West is another professor from Princeton. West is now retired and, and uh, teaching in the city somewhere. And, uh, and it was a conversation about two people with different views on politics and a range of issues, but who are nevertheless friends, and how do, they, how do they discuss in an honest, open way and try and get at the truth together, and how do they help students at Princeton? But George said the fundamental virtue that needs to happen is self-critical awareness. If people come to the conversation with no ability to criticize their own views, no intellectual humility, no progress can be made. That's how this guy is. He's sure he's right about everything. So the self-absorbed, they don't know they're self-absorbed. Self-infatuation does not lead to self-knowledge. But this guy, he's not done with the comparisons. He doesn't want to leave anybody out. So he continues, I am not even like this tax collector. And again, you hear the derision in the word this. This tax collector, like the older brother, remember, in the, in the Good Samaritan who spoke to his father in the parable of the, uh, not the Good Samaritan, the, the prodigal son. He speaks to his father and he says, this son of yours, this tax collector, I'm certainly not like this traitorous, extorting, unclean tax collector, that guy standing over there. So that's the end of the catalog of what the Pharisee is not like. And next he's going to list for God all of his virtues, just in case the Lord forgot or overlooked them. He says, I fast twice a week. Now, in the pharisaical mindset, this seems like a really, really good thing. But it's not. The law required fasting in Israel one day per year the Day of Atonement. There's God asks Israel to fast one day a year. But the Pharisees, that's not good enough. They go beyond. Beware of people who go beyond Scripture in their holiness. There's something wrong with this. So God says fast one day a year, and this guy says, I think I'll fast 104 days a year. Like that should set off some alarm bells. But I mean, nobody probably ever told them this, right? Who wants to stand up and oppose fasting? It's like opposing motherhood, 
right? You don't want to be the guy in the room who suggests, hey, maybe you should eat today. Pray less, eat more. So they go beyond this. The Pharisees fasted, apparently, from the evidence we have, they fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. Everyone thought they were pious. But this is a going beyond the Torah. And then he says, I give tithes, or I give a tenth, of all I get. Now that seems unimpeachable. But the tithing regulations require tithes on crops of wine, grain and oil, as well as livestock. Nothing else. You're required by the law to tithe on crops and livestock. But again, the Pharisee goes beyond that. He tithes on everything he gets. Right? Even though the stuff he's purchased has already been tithed on. He gladly pays the death tax. Yeah, I know it's been taxed. I'll pay it again. So he goes above and beyond the law. Why take chances? Maybe the law aims a little low. But he sounds very pious. All of his friends think he's really, really pious. Do you know that Billy fasts twice a week? Right? Did you know that he ties way beyond this, the amount required in the law? And all the evangelical Christians tremble because they think, wow, he must really be pious. Now, if you think this prayer is exaggerated or maybe caricatured a little by Jesus to make his point, uh, let, me, let me read to you a couple of prayers that were circulating. And it may be true that Jesus is caricaturing the, the prayer a little bit, but there are prayers like this, Jesus is trying to say. Jesus is telling a story. He's saying these kind of prayers are in circulation. The famous one is a prayer which says, starts like this, O God, I thank you, O Lord, that thou hast not made me a slave or a woman or a Gentile. But here's another one more closely parable to our text from the Talmud. The prayer goes like this. I give thanks to thee, O Lord my God, that thou hast set my portion with those who sit in the Beth HaMidrash, that's the house of learning. I give thanks to thee, O God, that you have set my portion with those who sit in the house of learning. And thou hast not set my portion with those who sit in street corners. For I rise early, and they rise early. But I rise early for words of Torah, and they rise early for frivolous talk. I labor, and they labor. But I labor and receive a reward, and they labor and do not receive a reward. I run, and they run. But I run to the life of the future world, and they run to the pit of destruction. So the Pharisees' prayer in our text is a reflection of at least some Pharisees in the ancient world, and more to the point of some Christians. Though, of course, we're well-trained, and we never come right out and state things this way. That would be gauche. And so what's the, what's the, what's the tech, what's the great, the great error here is that we can be right with God, and either look down on or despise our brother. In fact, we kind of think the two go together sometimes. Right? That's the nature of the human heart. That we're right with God, therefore we look down on other people. Somehow, we are law-abiding 
while we are ignoring the command to love our sinful neighbor as ourselves. Isn't that remarkable? The, the, the labyrinth-like quality of the human heart. We can convince ourselves that we're Torah-keeping, Torah-upholding, while we are in this process of violating the first and second great, com- the second great commandment of the Torah. So, you know, we often handle this simply by ignoring people who are different or difficult for us, or people we don't like, or people who might stretch us. Notice the, uh, the, the second party, if you will, in the text, the tax collector. His prayer starts in verse 13. It says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. The Pharisee stood alone out of pride. And this man removes himself from the crowd out of shame. He doesn't belong among these religious people. He has a deep sense of his sinfulness. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, the text says, which would be the normal thing you would do if if standing was the posture for prayer. You would normally look up. He's standing and he's looking down. And the text says he beat his breast. And and the the tense here indicates that he repeatedly beat his breast as a sign of contrition and humility. This beating of the breast is, is an act of deep repentance. And then he gives us his short but very potent prayer. It's a condensed version of uh, the great penitential psalm, Psalm 51. He says simply, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisee's prayer is 29 words. This prayer is seven. The Pharisee is self-absorbed, but not self-aware. This man is self-aware, but not self-absorbed. And an awareness of one's sinfulness does not lead to lengthy, morbid introspection. Right? It's not like being aware of your corruption and your sin means you go around all the time telling everybody how corrupt you are, or you pray really long prayers about how corrupt you are. It leads simply, as it does here, to seven-word prayers. He throws, simply to throwing oneself on the mercy of God. Pithy brevity is better than 11-minute prayers. When he says, when the, when the tax collector beats his breast and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, the word for ah uh really should be translated the there. That is, the text says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. We've talked about this before here. It's a way of saying, be merciful to me, the great sinner, the chief of sinners, the one who compared to this Pharisee is the sinner. And so again, there's, there's a real wholesome instruction here for the church. It says, we should deal with our own sins as if we were the world's only sinner. As if we were the greatest sinner in the world. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Because really, other people's sins are rarely our problem. It's always our own. And he pleads for mercy. 
And that's also rich in significance because the word for mercy is used elsewhere in the New Testament for, for a big word, propitiation, which propitiation means to satisfy the wrath of God. Like we, we, you might use the word propitious. You ask someone to be propitious towards you, you mean you want them to look with favor upon you. And this propitiation, this satisfaction, can only come through the bloody sacrifices which are being made at the temple. And that's the significance right here in the word mercy or propitiate. That's the significance of this scene taking place at the temple, at the time of prayer, at the time of sacrifice. The tax collector knows he's in danger. The Pharisees don't know they're in danger. But when, when you talk to a, a Pharisee type person, they never say, you know, I feel like I'm in spiritual danger in this area of my life. Or I read this text and it really scared me. Or I'm re-examining this. They, they don't talk like that. They're confident. But the tax collector thinks he's in trouble. He knows that wrath has to be averted. And when he uses the word mercy, it's a plea for God to make atonement for him, for God to be propitious, favorable to him, for God to effect reconciliation through the sacrifice which is being offered there in the temple. It's as if he's looking over, knowing that blood is being offered up in the temple precincts and saying, oh Lord, let that blood be for me. Let that sacrifice interpose itself between your justice and my sin. So that's the parable. The second point quickly here is justification. In verse 14, we get Jesus' verdict. He says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. You notice, again, the general terms, this man rather than the other man. Again, he uses a Pharisee and a tax collector maybe for shock value, but either, any of us could be either one of these people. And the word for justified here is the same word Paul uses. It means he went home righteous, declared as righteous. And so again, here's the reversal. We all saw it coming. We knew it was going to come. The scoundrel is justified. The religious man is not. And Jesus' audience, again, would find this hard to believe. And the basis for it, he says, is, you see this at the end of 14. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. So, the, the, you know, the Pharisees and those in the church like them, Jesus says, are those who justify themselves before men. Jesus actually uses that language in Luke 16. He says, they justify themselves before men, but God knows the heart. And he says, what's exalted among men is often an abomination in the sight of God. And he concludes and says, and the one who humbles himself, on the other hand, they, he will be exalted. So what does it mean when Jesus says the one who humbles himself will be exalted? It means we are to be like the tax collector. We are to be people who beat our breasts cry out for the atoning sacrifice of Christ, for the mercy of God to avail against our sins and against the corruption and the seductions of our own heart. And so Jesus, he does some comparing of his own at the end of verse 14. 
But when Jesus compares, it's never about how much you fast or tithe, nor is it even about the quality of your moral life. The decisive comparison for Jesus is between those who exalt themselves and those who humble themselves by seeking salvation by the divinely appointed atoning sacrifice. That's the, the, that's the way Jesus compares people and divides them. He says there's two kinds of people in the world. People who justify themselves and exalt themselves and people who throw themselves on the mercy of God. So justification was a scandal here. It was a scandal in Paul's churches in the first century. It was a scandal at the Reformation. And it still remains a scandal in the church, often just beneath the surface. Truth be told, a lot of us don't really like this. But it's, it's deeply entrenched in our nature that good people should go to heaven and bad people shouldn't. And we're among the good people. But this text says, look, there are unjustified pastors. Plenty of them. And there are justified, recovering prostitutes and homosexuals. Plenty of them. And that messes things up. Those who are written out by men are written in by the gospel. And they're written in as justified, acquitted, not on probation, righteous. Look, there's probably no doubt that the Pharisee would be a guy you'd rather live next to than the tax collector. The Pharisee's a better neighbor. He'll watch your house when you go on vacation. The tax collector might steal from you. There, there's no way that in any civic, outward, moral way, the Pharisee's probably the better guy. But guess what? The Pharisee went home lost, and the tax collector went home justified. Now, so this gospel of justification, I mentioned it's been a historical uh, scandal, but it's, Jesus announces it. You know, it's right, right then, right, right then and right there, this man goes down to his house justified. Now, I want you to contrast that. This is a canon, meaning a, a, a disciplinary rule, that came out of the first ecumenical council, the Council of Nicaea. The creed is wonderful. This canon is not. Those who had lapsed from the faith during the persecution in the era before Nicaea, the canon says, were to spend 12 years as public penitents before they might be readmitted to the sacraments. Here's what it says. Concerning those who have fallen without compulsion, without the spoiling of their property, without danger or the like, the synod declares that though they have deserved no clemency, they shall be dealt with mercifully. As many as were communicants, if they heartily repent, shall pass three years among the hearers. For seven years, they shall be prostrators. And for two years, they shall communicate with the people in prayers, but not with the sacrament. That's 12 years of exclusion from the sacraments for those who have repented. In a canon, in the church, in the early 4th century. So we can see something here, even in this era. There's something of a failure to fully grasp the justifying grace of God and what it means. You don't take repentant people and say, we have a 12-year plan to get you back to the supper. But the early church did that, at least in spots. 
I mean, that swerves dangerously close to the same kind of Pharisaicism, you know, that we see here. On the other hand, it is an astonishing thing to know just how much egoism and destructive self-righteousness the church will tolerate as long as someone is clean living and tithes. That we have a lot of patience for. (laughs) But, you know, it's interesting. Tax collectors, recovering prostitutes, they don't tear churches apart. Pharisees do it. And they do it down to this day. So I'm going to conclude. Grasping the teaching of this parable is slipperier, more slippery than it appears. Someone said, I think this is right. They said, if you see yourself in the Pharisee, you're probably a tax collector. And if you see yourself in the tax collector, you're probably a Pharisee. And there's a good deal of truth in that. And it points up the underlying danger. The reality is that when we look in the mirror, we see a bit of both characters. We do. And so what's the the only remedy then is what we spoke of earlier. Ruthless self-criticism. Ruthless self-evaluation. A sober realization that by nature we are like the Pharisee and thus we have to constantly beat our breasts, bemoan our own sins, and plead for the blood of Christ to render God favorable to us. So we should do this. We should humble ourselves this way for God will exalt us as his justified children in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.